Today, we discuss the second impeachment of President Trump, the separation anxiety the media is starting to experience nearing the end of Trump's term, some positive news regarding the effort to confront censorship out of Poland, and we raise awareness to the United Nations' disastrous abortion stance. All of this and more on another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. Happy Thursday, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Refining Politics and Culture, where we explore what it looks like together to have vitally important political, cultural, and faith conversations, all with the ultimate goal of exuding truth and love, conviction and grace in our discourse. I hope you all have had a fantastic week so far. Make sure that you stick around to the end of the episode today. I have a fun little episode or a fun little announcement for you. We have a lot that I want to cover today, so I'm going to jump right into it. Before I do, thank you so much for being here on this journey with me, listening to the show today. Honored that I have the opportunity to speak with you. As always, if you enjoy this content, make sure you share this show with your community. Subscribe to the show on the podcast provider of your choice. You can head to my website, refiningpoliticsandculture.com for more information. There you can subscribe to my email list. You can donate to the show if you'd feel that, if you'd desire to do that. Also, make sure you follow me on Instagram at RealMichaelSeifert, where I give daily updates regarding the current events that are happening around us, both domestically and internationally. Really enjoyed doing that. I hope and pray that that's a helpful resource for you. Now what I want to do is jump into the news of the day. First thing I want to talk to you about, breaking news. This is John Brown with the Daily Wire reporting. Democrat-controlled House votes to impeach Trump. The House of Representatives voted to impeach President Donald Trump for a second time on Wednesday, making him the first president in United States history to have been impeached twice. So what happened is the House voted on one article of impeachment against the president for allegedly, quote, encouraging imminent lawless action at the Capitol after a mob of his supporters breached and vandalized the Capitol last week. Unlike Trump's first impeachment, uh, multiple House Republicans joined the Democratic majority. I believe there were 10 in total. Those included Reps uh, Liz Cheney from Wyoming, Adam Kinzinger from Illinois, just to name two. The article of impeachment now heads to the Senate, where its outcome remains uncertain as Trump's term expires on January 20th and the Senate does not reconvene until January 19th. So if anything takes place from here, if the Senate actually takes this up and heads to trial, it will all happen if this is even legal, because there's a lot of legal questions around whether or not this is even constitutional, what would be happening from here. Um, if this actually moves forward, it will all happen when Trump is already out of office now as just a private citizen, which is wild. So we're going to talk about that in a second as well. But Trump man maintained after this that his second impeachment is a continuation of the first, which he described Tuesday as the greatest witch hunt in the history of politics. So the natural question that a lot of people have from here is where, where does this exactly go? And what is the point? Like I mentioned on Tuesday, I believe that this is entirely pointless. It is hyper-partisan, hyper-political, and it's just uh, a sad, it's like a sad movie to be watching our country going through these types of political shenanigans while there are actual Americans suffering from policies, by the way, that were enacted by the same people who are currently in office deciding to prioritize impeachment instead of prioritizing the well-being of Americans. But I digress. Ultimately, this will not be before Trump's term ends, like I mentioned, and President-elect Joe Biden has sworn in. The, the Senate's not scheduled to reconvene until the previous day, January 19th. In a January 8th memo to Senate Republicans, Washington Post reported this. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, in his final days as the Senate's agenda setter, as the majority leader, before Democrats assume the slimmest possible majority in the chamber, because remember, it'll be 50-50 with Vice President-elect 
Kamala Harris breaking the tie on any legislation said a trial couldn't start until shortly after the January 20th inauguration. He also said that all 100 senators would have to agree in order for the chamber to consider any other business, including votes on Biden's cabinet nominees or early legislative efforts during the duration of the trial. Excuse me. Trump's 2020 Senate impeachment trial lasted almost three weeks. Another question that many, including myself, have been asking is, Essentially, would this matter that would it matter that Trump's already out of office like on January 20th? He's gone. So would that matter? Would that change the legality of this impeachment? Does the Senate even have constitutional jurisdiction over a private citizen? Because once he leaves office, there's nothing that distinguishes him from a private citizen other than the benefits that he still receives um, from being a former president, which is ultimately what they would be hoping to remove him of. Um, I'll get to that in a second. But Washington Post says the most obvious reason to impeach a president is to remove him from office. That is the the punishment that fits the high crimes and misdemeanors um, conviction. And by the way, like I mentioned on Tuesday, the high crimes and misdemeanors is a very subjective term because the the Constitution did not specifically outline what that looks like um, for this impeachment proceeding process. So the House gets to subjectively determine that, which we're setting such dangerous precedent. My goodness. I'll talk about that in a second as well. But like the Washington Post says, the most obvious reason to impeach a president is to remove him from office, which would be a moot point. He's already gone. The legality of a Senate impeachment trial after a president has left office is an open question, like I mentioned, because it's never been tested in the courts. That's because no president impeached by the House has ever been convicted by the Senate, much less after leaving office. So not only have we not seen a president convicted in the Senate, we also have not seen a president convicted in the Senate once they're not even in office anymore. There's a lot of legal scholars. By the way, guys, I highly recommend um, going and uh, following on YouTube or your podcast provider. Uh, I I believe they have a podcast. I normally listen to it um, on YouTube. It's called the American Center for Law and Justice, and they do a fantastic job of breaking down a lot of constitutional questions like this that are rarities in politics. So situations that we rarely find ourselves in, they have a great a way of picking through the confusion in order to find the truth. And ultimately, even they have been left stumped. There's there's a real divide among legal scholars at the moment of, is this even a constitutional process? Would this be allowed? So the courts could, in theory, get involved and say one way or another, because we've never had a precedent-setting event like this, uh, the courts would maybe feel enticed to take this up and say, hey, wait a second, this, this isn't the proper means for impeachment. The Senate no longer has jurisdiction once the uh, outgoing president is now a private citizen. And ultimately, there's a lot that could happen here because the president's legal defense team, even if the Senate decided to take this, they could step up day one, which, by the way, Alan Dershowitz, the liberal lawyer and Harvard professor, has indicated that he'd maybe be willing to take the president's case if it went that far and he had to defend him. He could step up on day one and just say, none of this makes any sense. None of you have legal standing. You don't have jurisdiction over my client anymore. He's not the president of the United States. Uh, you already got the relief you want. He's out of office. Stop playing political games. And it could be done there. Ultimately, so a lot could happen. And then this could get sent to the court. And the the people that are prosecuting Trump, the the Senate members that would desire to convict him, their argument could be, well, we're not seeking that relief. We're not seeking removal from office. We're seeking the other relief offered under Article 1, Section 3, Clause 6 and 7, which says this. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust or profit under the United States. So the punishment for a conviction for impeachment in the Senate is twofold. One is 
the removal from office. The other is disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. So the advocates for impeachment, trial, and conviction in the Senate would say that's what we're seeking. We're seeking to disqualify this former president from any holding any public office in the future and also removing um, benefits that he is granted as a foreign president, which include, under the former President's Act of 1958, a lifetime pension, annual travel budget, funding for an office and staff. The one budget or the one um, the benefit that would not be affected would be protection by the Secret Service lifetime. That would uh, stay there in place for him and his family, regardless of what happens. But the easy defense to come back to this, if uh, the president's legal team was faced with that argument. The The argument is, in return, is very simple. Look at the first few sentences of that very article, Article 1, Section 3, Clause 6 and 7. The Senate shall have the sole power to trial impeachments. When sitting for that purpose, they shall be on oath or affirmation. Now, here you go. Listen to this. When the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside, and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. When the president of the United States is tried. So Alan Dershowitz or whoever's defending the president, if this actually went there, they could say, well, there you go, guys, throw this out. This is ridiculous. He's not the president of the United States. And the Constitution is very clear. If you're interpreting it as written by the founders, this only applies when he is indeed the president of the United States. He is no longer the president of the United States. So case closed. Ultimately, that's why I don't think this is going anywhere. I, I, I really don't. Um, not only do I think that the courts, if they got involved, would say, like I just mentioned, that this sets really bad precedent and we don't believe that the founders would have approved of this sort of impeachment process. But also, I don't think that the Senate could get two thirds majority to be able to actually convict the president. I just I don't see that happening. Uh, you'd need 17 Republicans that would have to turn on the president and vote to convict after he's already out of office. So that would be 17 Republicans that would be doing that solely for the purpose of restricting him from running again in 2024. I'm not saying it's impossible. There are a lot of Republican uh, senators that do not like the president, but the reality is that would be such a misguided, damaging approach. Here's what Congress seems to not understand. There were 75 million Americans that voted for the president. Not only that, even today, he still has a 48% approval rating amongst the highest rated pollsters. So Rasmussen, for example, who I think I mentioned on Tuesday, had the, the most accurate polling in 2016 and 2020. They said uh, yesterday that his approval rating is still 48%. Amongst Republicans, his approval rating is over 70%. So you have a party that very much approves of what this president has done over his four years. Doesn't like everything about him. Uh, for, I've been a good example of this. I am not happy with the way that he conducted himself largely over the last two, three weeks. But at the same time, the president in policy was the best president of my lifetime. And there's not a close second. I mentioned that last week. So a lot of Americans are in that boat where they say, yeah, he was not perfect, but my goodness, well, he wasn't even close to perfect, but my goodness, like nobody is perfect. And ultimately, the president has the higher approval rating than Congress. So Congress right now only has a 15% approval rating. And actually, last week, that approval rating, um, some pollsters had it down to 9%. They have the lowest approval rating of any institution in our country. So if the Senate is thinking right now, if these 17 senators that are considering voting to convict are thinking, yeah, we can't stand Trump so much, we're going to restrict him from running in 2024, so we're going to vote against him and vote for impeachment and conviction, you would be turning your back on all of your constituents because the overwhelming majority of Americans right now Actually, the overwhelming majority of Americans, not just Republicans, that's important to note, think that this is ridiculous. Think that after we have moved into this next term, 
an impeachment conviction is a pointless waste of time. So I hope and pray that enough Republican senators, even if they really dislike Trump, would stand up and say like, hey, this is pointless. Let's not do this. Uh, Let's not move forward. This is clearly not what the American people actually want. Ultimately, it's important to note this too. I am not even a fan of Trump running again in 2024. He'll be 78. I don't think that that's the right move. I think we need younger politicians in general. I think that the best thing to do is to spend the next four years uh, really taking a hard look in the mirror and training up who can carry on the conservative movement next into the future. And I think that Trump's policy moves need to be exactly where the Republican Party need to move going forward. I think that what he has done on trade, foreign policy, he's been the strongest advocate for pro-life policies in U.S. history. The way he supported Israel, the way he stood against China, the way he's advocated for peace deals through economic prosperity in the Middle East. I mean, all of these things, to, it's in my mind, are exactly where the Republican Party needs to move going forward. We do not need to go back to the Mitt Romney politics of 2012. I think that's the move, but I don't think it needs to be Trump carrying that mantle. So while I believe that to be the case, I would never assert that the Senate should restrict him from running again in 2024. That is a wild, wild proposition. And I think it is a complete uh, sham of what the impeachment process was supposed to be. Not only that, I, I think that this this impeachment was a sham and the first place because he did not commit high crimes and misdemeanors. You can strongly disagree with how the president conducted himself last week and also admit, like I mentioned on Tuesday, that this was not, he didn't commit any impeachable offenses. And actually, uh, constitutional law professor Jonathan Turley, he, he gave a great synopsis of what happened yesterday. He called the effort to conduct a snap impeachment of President Trump a constitutional contradiction. He said that impeachment is designed to be a deliberative, not an impulsive act of Congress. The framers made it very difficult. And what is being suggested now is to virtually snap vote on the floor of the House of Representatives, which is an issue that really needs to be deliberated. But the Democrats did not want to deliberate. They wanted quick, in, out, impeach. We don't even need a full investigation to have concluded. We don't need a full and proper hearing. We don't need a full defense. Just move forward and do it. Jonathan Turley said speeches encouraging people to go to state and federal capitals to protest what is going on inside happen all the time. That's not an invitation to riot. He argued that the statements were political speech and would be protected both under Supreme Court precedent and the First Amendment. This goes back to what I said on Tuesday. The word uh, incitement needs to be taken seriously. What Trump did on last Wednesday was not incitement to violence. It was not incitement to insurrection. It was not incitement to... uh, chaos at all in the slightest, actually. It was very normal political speech. If you go back and listen to his entire speech, never once did he advocate for violence. He advocated for peace. You can argue that he didn't do enough to stop it, but that is not an impeachable offense. That's an entirely separate argument. Jonathan Turley says, if you're going to impeach someone over a speech, it's a type of vicarious impeachment. You're saying you gave a speech while you didn't call for rioting, but people did riot. Is that the standard going forward, where a president gives a speech where supporters get out of hand, commit crimes, they can be removed from office? It's also important to note that rushing impeachment proceedings like this uh, mean that you don't have a full, thorough, due process, and therefore you really don't know all the facts before you are committing to charge someone with impeachment. So this was recognized last night, even by CNN. The media, the media narrative we've heard for the last week is that you know people showed up at the Capitol and their president uh, spoke very clearly, incited violence against the Capitol building. Then people felt inspired to violence, so they went and committed violence. Now, like again, like I mentioned, you can disagree strongly with how the president conducted himself that day. I do in many ways. At the same time. 
you, he did not incite violence. How do we know? Well, according to CNN last night, evidence uncovered so far, including weapons and tactics seen on surveillance video, suggests a level of planning that has led investigators to believe the attack on the U.S. Capitol was not just a protest that spiraled out of, spiraled out of control. They actually believe that it was a pre-planned event that was going to happen regardless of what the president said. Not only do we know that to be the case from these federal investigations to come out, you can actually look through the timeline. At 1258 was when the first fence was broken through at the Capitol. It's a 25-minute walk from where Trump was speaking to the Capitol building. 1258, the fence was broken through. Trump didn't finish speaking until 1.12 in the afternoon. So the people that broke into the Capitol building largely weren't even listening to President Trump's speech. So the idea that he is deserving of impeachment because he incited the violence that took place at the Capitol is wild. What happened at the Capitol that day was terrible. It was disturbing. Five people lost their lives. The images from that day were horrifying. It was just such a hard thing to even imagine could happen here in the United States. At the same time, it's inappropriate to blame the president for things that he didn't do. And that's my ultimate point in all this, is that you can acknowledge the atrocities that took place on that Wednesday and desire that the people that were responsible be held responsible to the fullest extent of the law. And at the same time, don't allow for this uh, tragedy just to be turned into some sort of political weapon to aim at political opponents you don't like and charge them with things that they didn't actually do. So those that are responsible, hold them responsible. Those that are not responsible, don't give them responsibility or say that they should claim responsibility for things that they weren't responsible for. So now what the House is saying, well, challenging the election in general for the past two months incited them to violence. Because he believed the election was stolen, they're saying that that is grounds for incitement of violence. That is wild. So if you question the election and the election results, you in turn were advocating for the violence that took place at the Capitol on Wednesday. You were part of the problem. Again, if that's the standard, then we need to address Hillary Clinton because still to this day, she doesn't believe she lost the election. We need to address Stacey Abrams. Still to this day, she does not believe she lost the Georgia election. She still claims that it was stolen from her. Hillary Clinton still believes Trump was a Russian agent. For two years, MSNBC told us that Trump has been working on behalf of Russia since the 80s. So does that mean that they were inciting violence? Does that mean that any of the protests that have turned violent because they say, not my president and we are the resistance, does that mean that the Democrats purposely incited violence because they challenged the election results over the last four years? They say that uh, Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz were inciting violence because they objected to the Electoral College results. Does that mean that in 2016, 2004, and 2000, when Democrats objected to the Electoral College results, that they were also inciting violence? These standards are so dangerous. It sets such a bad precedent. So the House rushed this impeachment process. They didn't have evidence to back up their claims. You can strongly disagree with what the president said on Wednesday or that he didn't do enough to stop it. But at the same time, that does not mean it's impeachable. Now we have more evidence that it, that has uncovered the fact that the people that were going there to commit violence a- violent actions had been planning to for weeks in advance, regardless of what the president was going to say. And now the timeline asserts that as well that the majority of people that had violent intentions that day did not even listen to what the president said, largely. So important notes there. But ultimately, the the thing I want to end on here is that the precedent that this sets is, is something that we are going to be reckoning with for a long time. Jonathan Turley, the legal scholar I was just mentioning, he, he concluded his statements by giving a cautionary note, warning Democrats were creating a dangerous precedent that could be used against them when Republicans gain back control of Congress. 
So what happens now in the future? Anytime a majority, a party holds a majority in the House of Representatives, they're just going to move on impeachment. If Trump can really be impeached for this, don't you think that this will be used in the future when any party holds that majority seat? In fact, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a new freshman Republican congresswoman, announced that on January 25th, she will file um, a move to impeach President-elect Joe Biden, which I think is a dumb idea, by the way, just because I am more conservative leaning and I'm someone uh, who votes Republican uh, that I don't actually support that. I think that that's a ridiculous assertion as well, because, again, you're making impeachment a political weapon. It was never intended to be high crimes and misdemeanors. That is the standard for impeachment. And I really believe the standard that we should hold our elected officials to in our country is going back and honoring the intentions of that constitution. That is what binds us together in this country. That is our standard for conducting uh, the, the business of governance. And if we allow for our uh, congressional officials, elected officials, to completely misinterpret the meaning of the Constitution in order that they would accomplish their political goals, we are, we've elected the wrong people, essentially. So the last thing I'll say on this that I, I've been thinking about a lot recently, I'm starting to wonder what the media is going to do without Trump. So I, I actually think that the reason that the media is really pushing for uh, the trial for impeachment to continue even in, when Biden is in office is because not because the media has a great deal of animus towards Trump. That's certainly part of it, but also because I think the media feels a little lost without him. I think the media feels like lost puppies without a home because uh, in six days they recognize that the president is going to be out of office. And what are they going to talk about anymore? Because for the last four years, all they have talked about is Trump, what he says, what he does, his tweets. They've been addicted to this man. They've idolized him in a sense, not in the sense that they've actually looked up to him, but that they've actually expressed idolatry because they have certainly put him as the forefront of their thought and attention. And now, you know, because they're so biased in their coverage, CNN, MSNBC, NBC, what? Are they just going to scrutinize Biden with the same energy and create the same scandalous um, headlines about him? No, of course not, because he's on their team. They basically serve as the propaganda wing uh, for the Democrat Party. And when their guy is in office, they're, they're not going to scrutinize him. It'll be back to the Obama years where, uh, you know, the American public is largely kept in the dark about what that administration is actually doing because the media doesn't want to cover anything that may paint that administration in a negative light. So the media is starting to question, well, shoot, like Trump gave us ratings. Trump gave us purpose. What do we do now? Actually, there's a, a journalist named Robert Jonathan who wrote a piece about this that I really um, appreciated. He, he wrote a piece on, on Christmas called, Is the Media Doomed Without Trump? And again, this was written a few weeks ago on Christmas, but I think it's still very relevant to what we're seeing now, if not more so. He wrote that old saying about being careful what you wish for might apply to corporate media pundits and the organizations they work for as the country heads into the Christmas gift-giving holiday. For the last four years, and perhaps even before, Donald Trump has functioned as media critic-in-chief. Plus, the president has long predicted that market share of his relentless media foes, whom he labeled as purveyors of fake news, will eventually crash when he leaves office. And uh, in October 2020, a cable news host supposedly told the liberal Vanity Fair that we in the news media have thought for years that this gravy train is coming to an end. Donald Trump brought us better ratings than we ever thought we'd have by this time in 2020, adding that the president has given many of us extended relevance or new relevance. Similarly, writing in the New York Post uh, back in early December in a perspective column headline, news media zombies will have nothing to feed on after Trump's presidency. Oh, gosh. National Review columnist Kyle Smith implied that Trump's departure from elective office is the equivalent to a lump of coal in the media's Christmas stocking. And starting off with what he described as some free advice for the president, Smith claimed, in part, that Trump can displace the Times, the Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, and other perpetually outraged virtue-signaling news organizations merely if he stops talking. 
Since approximately June 16th of 2015, all of these news outlets' business models have been built around the same strategy, turning your words into their profits. The Times tripled, tripled its online subscriber roles in what's supposed to be a dying era for newspapering. The ideologically hamstrung media, uh, which Glenn Reynolds has deemed Democrat operatives with bylines, can't rely on Biden for content and protect him at the same time. And if Trump, as a private citizen, should stop providing the media with 24-7 OMG moments, what then? There's no plan B. Covering Biden scandals won't happen, unless you mean covering them up. Ultimately, Smith wrote, once Trump leaves the White House, the only the media's only hope is this. Attract viewers by pretending he is still the most important man on earth. So again, this is why I do believe that they are pushing for this impeachment process to be dragged out as long as possible. It's not a desire to see justice. Again, this this incitement charge isn't rooted in any sort of reality. It's not a desire to see some sort of reckoning for the Republicans. It's it's what I believe a deeper desire to just want to keep talking about him. They absolutely love to talk about how much they hate this man. And rather than functioning as objective journalists that actually cover the news properly, they have chosen to allow their bias to overwhelm themselves. And I hope and pray that there's a humbling process that happens next week. I hope and pray that after next week, when Biden is in office, the media says, you know what? We made a mistake in the Trump era. We, we covered him 24-7 and never gave him the benefit of the doubt. We never actually looked at the positive stuff he was doing. We never looked at the other side and the negative stuff they were doing. We intentionally covered those stories up, actually. And you know what? Moving forward, we probably need to set a better example for viewers in our political climate and cover the administration, regardless of who's in office, properly, adequately, fairly, objectively as possible, leaving as much of our bias at the door. Do I believe the media will do that? It's not likely because they've had an opportunity over the last two months to ask Biden tough questions if they wanted to about his son's being under federal investigation about his deals with China, uh, about his deals in Ukraine, about uh, his past experience in the Obama administration and some of the scandals that took place over the eight years. But they haven't. They haven't done that. So I'm, I'm not hopeful that they'll start now, but I would love to see it. And honestly, if they apologize to the American people and said, yeah, you know what? We've completely misled Americans for the last four years. We are the most destructive force in our political climate at the moment which I do full-heartedly believe, if they apologized, I'd forgive them and give them a fresh start. I just so badly want to see that happen because there's real news that people need to hear and the media has done the American people a disservice by not covering it. I promise you on this show, we're going to continue um, into this next administration covering the news, covering actually what's taking place, not just telling you uh, the news that is the most scandalous or sounds the most uh, dramatic. We're going to talk about what people actually need to hear, what's truly taking place in the world around us. And we're going to challenge this next administration because no one in the media seems to be willing to do so. So, Next thing I want to talk about, I'm going to leave that there. That's Trump. That's impeachment. That's where the, the Senate and the House are currently at. That's kind of what, what this is shaping up to look like into the next chapter of American politics. What I want to do now is I want to follow up. I, I mentioned on Tuesday uh, just the, the drastic efforts that big tech has gone to to censor voices that they disagree with. And I wanted to give you some really positive news. Poland has planned to make censoring of social media accounts illegal. Following Trump's Twitter ban, Polish government wants to protect posts that do not break nation's laws. Polish government officials have denounced the deactivation of Donald Trump's social media accounts and said a draft law being readied in Poland will make it illegal for tech companies to take similar actions there. Algorithms or the owners of corporate giants should not decide which views are right and which are not, wrote the Prime Minister Matusz Morawiecki on Facebook earlier this week without directly mentioning Trump. There can be no consent to censorship. 
This is The Guardian reporting. Mordoviecki indirectly compared social media companies taking decisions to remove accounts with Poland's experience during the communist era. Censorship of free speech, which is the domain of totalitarian and authoritarian regimes, is now returning in the form of a new commercial mechanism to combat those who think differently, he wrote. He is absolutely right. And for those of us who have been wondering, where do we go from here? Like, what's the government's role in holding these tech companies accountable? Because clearly they've abused their power. They've abused Section 230, which was supposed to be a a mechanism that provided guardrails for these tech companies so that they could operate in the market freely, but ensure that they do it in a way that doesn't lead to, again, way too much power being concentrated in these three or four guys' hands. Well, Poland says, hey, the idea of moderating content, you can moderate content that is illegal in nature, but if you're moderating content that is not illegal in nature, you're acting as ideologues, and that is not the proper function of what you have claimed to be in your business. If you want to moderate content based on ideology, become a news organization, become a publisher. But if you want to uh, moderate content based on ideology and still claim you're a tech company, no way, that is illegal. So way to go, Poland. We need to take more steps like this. I thought that that was an awesome piece of good news because sometimes we can talk about some of these Uh, really disturbing things to watch take place in our society and then be left kind of saying, well, what do we do from here? Well, I think Poland just provided an awesome example, a great framework for how we can deal with the advancing world digitally, the fourth industrial revolution where so much of our public square interactions take place on these digital platforms. So hope and pray that we'll keep mind of this. Um, I hope and pray that we'll hold our government officials accountable to keep mind of this because I think it's really, really needed in this advancing age. All right, two more pieces of news that I want to share with you before we end today's episode. Quick piece of news out of the CDC. A study has found that COVID-19 outbreaks aren't fueled by in-person classes. A new study published by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that in-person classes at K-12 schools do not appear to lead to increases in COVID-19 when compared with areas that have online-only learning. This is huge. The CDC study noted that in the week beginning December 6th, coronavirus cases among the general population in counties where K-12 through schools opened for in-person learning were similar to rates in counties that were online only. So what we now know, because the CDC has confirmed it, is what we have been saying, a lot of conservatives have been saying, or people that are embracing common sense right now have been saying, for months. Dr. Scott Atlas was on my show this summer in June, and he adequately described why he believes the science is clearly there that asserts that closing down schools is all detriment with no benefit. Sending kids to online learning is destructive. It is not helpful. It's not healthy. It causes way more uh, destructive side effects rather than any sort of benefits. And we need to make it our number one priority to open the schools. And he was called the worst names for that. People attacked him all over the media for the next few months, claiming that he wanted to put the lives of children and their teachers at risk. In reality, he was right all along. And Honestly, to be completely frank with you guys, I had to repent yesterday to the Lord, just apologize, because I I have felt tempted in this arena um, with this school closure to, to exert a sort of told-you-so attitude to people that have used that sort of rhetoric over the last few months, that if you're advocating for opening schools, you're trying to kill the teachers and their kids. I mean, I... I there's so much in me that just wanted to shout from the rooftops, guys, wake up. Like, told you so. The, the schools being open does not lead to higher coronavirus transmission. So... There's a healthy way to do that. And just running to the rooftops and shouting that is not a healthy way to do that. Uh, Told you so attitudes are never fun. So definitely want to keep that accountable in my own self. 
But at the same time, I think it's important to reiterate to society around us that, hey, there is a group of people that have been saying this for months and the media and the Democrat politicians shut them out of the public square, even censored doctors that were willing to say this. There needs to be a reckoning. There needs to be some sort of apology made. There needs to be a sort of, hey, let's all come back to the table and acknowledge what went wrong in this last season. You don't get to just publish studies like that, CDC, in the Hill magazine, and then just expect for people to be like, oh, okay, well, I guess everything's changed now. The reality is there are people that knew this accurately this summer. And we had kids that's mental health suffered over the last six months because we kept them out of school when indeed they needed to stay in school. And the risk for coronavirus transmission was not higher for those that did indeed stay in school. That comes from the CDC now. That is the top institute in the country that we're supposed to be trusting, listening to the experts. Well, the experts have confirmed what many of us have said for months now. So that's not a told you so thing, but it is to say that we need to have a national conversation about what went well. And what did not go well in this past season, one of the things that strongly uh, was a strong failure was our media shutting down voices that they that did not align with their political narrative, which was really guided by the teachers unions, the destructive teachers unions in this past season. Um, and that's a serious problem because there were people that were advocating to keep our kids healthy that uh, if we would have listened to them, they're medical experts too. If we would have listened to them, we would have saved our kids a lot of, of uh, from a lot of the destructive side effects that came with uh, resorting to only online schooling in school districts across the country over the last fall. So wanted to point that out there. Last thing I want to talk about is a piece of really heartbreaking news, honestly. Um, Live Action, which is an incredible organization, they, they do a great deal of work to advocate for the lives of the unborn and to promote the truth about uh, the destruction of abortion. They came out with a column last week. The United Nations is heavily promoting the idea of a human right to abortion. So y'all know me. You know, if you've listened to the show for any amount of time, that I have a lot of problems with the United Nations. I think that we should completely ditch the United Nations. We should stop funding that atrocity of an organization. Uh, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. A recent publication from the United Nations Population Fund illustrates several troubling trends at the UN. The steady push to insinuate a human right to abortion, the overreach of special experts in the human rights system, and the tendency of problematic language and ideas to migrate from one agency to another. In December, the UNFPA published a guidance document how to apply a human rights-based approach to its work in family planning and maternal health. UNFPA's original mandate was established in 1994 by the International Conference on Population and Development, but the new report argues new human rights have been discovered, quote-unquote, by various UN bodies. For instance, in 2016, the UN Committee on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights issued General Comment 22 that UNFPA says details obligations to ensure a right to abortion. The reality is abortion has never been an international human right, and neither UNFPA nor the UN human rights mechanisms such as treaty bodies have the power to make it a right. Quick note to pause here. The UN Human Rights Council is a disaster. They've allowed countries like Saudi Arabia, China, Iran to have a say in what constitutes human rights, which is wild. Nevertheless, the insinuation that such a right exists, abortion, has been steadily imposed by treaty bodies and then echoed by other parts of the UN system, including UNFPA and the World Health Organization. So UNFPA in particular has attempted to walk a fine line on the abortion issue for decades. When the United States under President Trump cut its funding due to its promotion of abortion, abortion and complicity in China's former one-child policy, UNFPA tried to defend themselves 
And uh, they, they tried to say that they do not perform, promote, or fund abortion. But at a previous executive board meeting, some of UNFPA's evaluators suggested, and this is big news, it could do more to promote abortion while praising its, quote, discreet leadership in getting abortion-causing drugs onto several countries' essential medicines list. So they certainly do promote abortion. They're lying to the world. U.S. President-elect Joe Biden has stated his intention to restore funding to UNFPA. So there's the heartbreaking piece is that where we're going in six days is is into an administration that loves this stuff, that would love for abortion to be labeled a human rights worldwide. And this push obviously has massive complications because as we near closer and closer to that sort of classification, um, even informally, what the UN is essentially then saying is that any country that seeks to outlaw abortion uh, is violating human rights. And that that's, again, just a, a really dangerous place to be in when the globe at large agrees on that. Um, it's clear that pressure from treaty monitoring bodies and subsequent support from legislators and judges will increase in the coming years. The way governments can protect themselves is to take on the role of persistent objectors, a concept in international law that would stop a customary right to abortion. So that's ultimately what we hope our country will do, which is object to this. Now, again, under the next administration, I'm not hopeful that that will happen, but that still needs to be our push in whatever sphere of influence we have. All of this is made more heartbreaking by the fact that more than 1.1 million abortions have already taken place worldwide in the first 10 days of 2021, according to statistics provided by the World Health Organization. Using World Health Organization data, a website called Worldometer, Worldometer keeps a running tally of data related to everything from demographics to economics and also provides a continuously updated total for abortions performed in the calendar year. As of this writing, and this was on January 10th, the number for abortions for 2021 stood at 1,113,770. According to World Health Organization, there are an estimated annual 40 to 50 million abortions in the world, which corresponds to approximately 125,000 abortions performed each day. Currently, abortion is the leading cause of death in the world, with some 42.7 million abortions performed in 2020, followed by heart disease, cancer, and lower respiratory disease. So I've said it before, I'll say it again, I'm going to continue saying it on this show. Abortion is the most serious and grave human rights crisis of our time. It is the most serious genocide in human history. It deserves our attention. We need to confront this. 42 million people killed last year. And sadly, a large chunk of our world advocates for this. So as saddening as it is to talk about, we have to continue raising awareness to it. We have to be able to speak about this issue. We cannot allow for political correctness or the, the fear of offending people keep us from being honest about the atrocities that are happening right before our eyes. So abortion is not a human right. And for the UN to be moving that way is heartbreaking. To, to assert that the taking of an innocent child's life, the bloodshed of an innocent baby is somehow a human right is the farthest thing from rational. And it's the farthest thing from God's definition of righteousness. It is murder, it's heartbreaking, and uh, we should do everything we can to stand against it and to pray that truth would flood our society about what's truly happening uh, to the lives of the unborn across the world. So I don't mean to end on a negative piece of news there, but I do believe it's really, really important that we keep this issue at the front of our mind and that we do whatever we can in our sphere of influence to confront it. What I want to do to close this episode is I want to share with you a fun little update to refining politics and culture. I am starting to do quite a bit more public speaking. 
Part of what I love about the podcast is getting to hear from you guys about how the show is positively affecting you, um, questions that you have, comments that you have, things you want to share with me. That has been so fun for me to interact with those of you that have been on this journey with me. It's been such an incredible blessing. Now we're going to take that to the next level. I want to interact with all of you in person. I'm starting this spring to do some travel to speak at different churches, uh, local events, people's homes speaking about a wide array of issues related to politics, culture, faith. So if that's something you'd be interested in me doing, if you'd be interested in hosting me in your city, I would love to explore what that looks like with you. I can send you some more information. We're starting to book up this spring. So make sure if you are interested uh, that you send me an email as soon as possible on my website, refiningpoliticsandculture.com. Uh, you can head to the contact me page, send me an email. I'll answer as soon as I possibly can with more information. I'm always excited to connect with those of you that are on the journey with me. So that's a fun little update for you. With all that being said, as always, if you enjoyed this content, make sure you share the show with your community. Make sure you subscribe to the show on the podcast provider of your choice. You can leave a positive review on Apple if you have not already. That helps the show grow tremendously with the algorithm. Make sure you keep up to date with my social media and my website because we are going to be releasing a video in the next few days. You'll see that soon. With all that being said, it's been an honor to speak with you all today. This has been another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert.